Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone by Trevor Leggett This collection of pieces is reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whom the ancient traditions were always young. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. Humble. The temple had a good number of rare manuscripts, and the librarian, an excellent scholar, catalogued them efficiently and arranged for their publication. Scholars came to consult him from distant centers of learning, and the temple and its librarian became famous. One day, a visitor was congratulating him on his great contributions to learning, and the priest looked out of the window and pointed to an old man sweeping up the leaves in the garden. That is a humble task, he said with a very kindly smile, and people sometimes forget that the library, and the whole temple, in fact, is supported on humble work like that. Humble work like that. In their own way, he and others like him make a great contribution. The visitor was impressed, and when he said farewell to the abbot, he mentioned the incident. When I saw that humble man sweeping up the leaves, he said, and listened to such kind words about him by that wonderful scholar, the librarian, I realized the unity of the temple for the first time. Oh, he's not exactly humble, answered the abbot. He's thinking that although the librarian is so famous, and he himself is unknown outside this temple, still, when the spiritual truth comes out, and if he has anything to do with it, it soon will, it will be the simple gardener who is acclaimed, and the arrogant librarian who is humiliated. And, in the meantime, he gives the assistant gardener hell. Both those two have some way to go before they realize that becoming famous as a librarian and sweeping the leaves in the garden are spiritually the same thing. They are occasions for practice and ultimately illumination and inspiration, the outward form of the occasion has no importance at all. The Buddha wind is turning the leaves in the library through the fingers of the librarian, and turning the leaves in the garden through the broom of the gardener. But it is not the same Buddha wind.
racing dive. A well-known modern Zen master, on tour with his attendant, visited a Zen center for layfolk, founded by a pupil of his. In addition to their sitting practice, they were encouraged to undertake joint social work to help the local school and so on, but not so much that it became an overriding concern. When he was introduced to the members, the master seemed to have an immediate understanding with one of the women, a long-time member of the group. She was known as a good, quiet worker, but not otherwise remarkable. He did not give her special attention, though he asked her opinion on several points. When the time came for the individual farewells, the two of them stood for a few seconds looking into each other's eyes. The head of the group took the opportunity to thank the master for his kindness to each one of our humble lay group. It is an example of the Buddhist principle of no distinctions, he concluded. No distinctions indeed agreed the master, and the woman repeated, No distinctions. They burst out laughing, bowed to each other, and then both bowed to the slightly confused group leader. The little occasion was over. On the way home, the attendant found himself wondering about what he had seen. On return, he was asked by a senior how it had gone, and related the incident. He then asked, whether the master had seen something special in that lay follower, and if so, by what indications. A trained eye can see much more than an untrained one, replied the senior, but usually such indications can't be explained. The attendant persisted, and finally the other said, Well, I'll tell you a case from another field. When I was young, I was interested in sport, and a student friend a first-rate swimmer, offered to give me advanced lessons. When I was tired, I sat for a rest on the side of the bath while my friend swam up and down. I saw a very athletic-looking man come out of the changing rooms and stand on the edge of the bath, obviously waiting for a little clearing so that he could dive in. Looking at his trained physique and posture, straight as a spear, I thought, now we'll see something. My friend happened to swim up then and beckoned me to come in. I told him, I just want to see this chap go in. He just glanced across and said, ah, He's no good. Come on in. And so it proved the athlete had clearly not trained at swimming. Afterwards, when I asked how he had known, he said, Oh, he had his feet together. If you dive off from that position, the body will twist a bit and the first stroke will be impaired. In a race, that might be decisive. The racing dive is always made with the feet underneath the shoulders. Then there's no twist. I objected, but he wasn't in a race then. No, but once you've learned the racing dive, you never again have the feet together. Even just standing around in the baths, you'd never want anything to do with that horrible twist. Under the shoulders... That's where your feet would be. I've given you that example, 
Now, as to our master, of course, I can only guess. Both of them were then functioning in distinctions, place and time. Zen master and lay worker, man and woman, and all the rest. But perhaps, when they met, they saw something in each other of an inner posture, ready at any time for a racing dive into no distinctions. The spiritual feet were under the spiritual shoulders, and no horrible twist. Devil, devil. There is a method of reciting certain sutras, or parts of sutras, in which special attention is put on to the sound uttered. The would-be reciter sometimes practices for a time in the open, intoning the sonorous Chinese monosyllables into the wind on the edge of a cliff, or against the roar of a waterfall. If all goes well, Gradually he comes to feel that he is bringing out all his insides with the utterance, and that his voice is penetrating the whole scene before him. It is technically called reciting the sutra with the whole body. When he can realize the feeling, he practices to retain it, even when he repeats the sutra very softly. He still feels his body one with the sound and syllables resonating with the universe. It can take a long time to acquire skill in this practice, and some of those who do might certainly have reason to feel pleased with themselves. One of the lesser-known sutras is thought to be particularly suited to this practice, and a city businessman a practitioner of the method, having heard about it, asked his teacher to coach him in it. He took as his exercise to do one long chapter every evening before retiring. He made this an invariable rule, and was determined never to break it, a vow which he had communicated to the teacher. One day, his company sent him to look at a stretch of remote coastline, which they were considering developing as a part of a larger operation. The only human habitation was a village, and he had to stay overnight at the one small inn. He successfully made the inspection for the company, but when he unpacked his night things in the evening, he was horrified to find that by some mischance he had failed to bring his copy of the sutra. He did not know it by heart, and he asked the innkeeper whether he could borrow a copy. But it turned out that the innkeeper did not himself have anything but the usual lotus sutra, and the village temple was closed, the priest being away. In confusion, 
he resolved to telephone the teacher and ask him what to do. There was only one telephone in the little inn, and he had to make the call from the host's own room. As he sat in a corner explaining the situation, he noticed that the host was talking to another guest, a handsome, intelligent-looking man with an arrogant expression. They went on with their conversation, but obviously they were bound to hear everything he said, and he thought he saw a look of contempt on the face of the guest. The teacher told him over the telephone, You must accept this as it has happened. It must have a meaning for you. Now do not attempt your recitation, but instead recall as much as you can of the meaning of the sutra. Do not think of the sounds, but of what the world-honoured one meant his listeners to understand. But I have always been reciting this for the sound. My practice will have lost its point. Of course, I suppose the meaning is important, but this sutra is very fitted for the repetition by sound. You said so yourself. How could the Buddha want that I should not do it now? Well, when the Buddha first gave this sutra, the listeners went by the meaning. He wasn't saying it in Chinese. And the Buddha is telling you now that tonight you too should go deeply into the meaning. Deeply into the meaning? I remember some of it, of course, but I don't know that I... And his voice trailed off. Somewhat crushed, the reciter stammered out his thanks and put the phone down slowly. At the same time, he noticed the other guest get up abruptly and go out. He had his evening meal alone in his room, still trying to think of some way round the difficulty, as he hoped he would not have to follow the teacher's second-best method. When the maid was taking away the tray, a voice from outside said, Excuse us, may we come in for a moment? It was the host and the handsome man. The latter approached him, respectfully, with a small book wrapped up in silk. He said, I hope you will excuse my impertinence, but... I could not help overhearing a bit of your conversation on the telephone a little time ago. It so happens that my wife's sister in the village is a devout reciter of sutras, and it occurred to me that very possibly she might have a copy of the one you want, though I understand from what you said that it is not very widely known. Well... I ventured to go round to ask her, and, by great good fortune, it turned out that she did have one. I think she may have been a little surprised to hear me asking about it, but I explained your position, and she was most sympathetic. She is very willing to lend it to you for the evening. Please just leave it with my good friend the host, when you depart early tomorrow, as I suppose you will have to do.
She says you are not to feel any sense of obligation. As a fellow devotee, she is honoured to have the opportunity of offering a little help. The businessman was overwhelmed with gratitude and thanked him profusely. The kindly guest then took his leave. As he went out, he turned and looked at the devotee with a curious expression, which the latter could not interpret. The host stayed behind to make sure that the man from the city had everything he needed. After confirming that all was satisfactory, he remarked, It was most unexpected that he should go to all that trouble to find and bring you that sutra. He always says that Buddhism tends to make people lazy. In fact, he is a fanatical opponent of Buddhism. His nickname is Yasha which means devil, and he lives up to it, as far as Buddhism is concerned. He's dead against sutra reading or anything like that. At least that's what everyone thought, but perhaps that was wrong, at any rate in this case. Yes, he's certainly been an angel to me, remarked the city man. Well, I'm very glad. As a fellow member of our village, I'm proud that he wanted to show our hospitality, regardless of personal beliefs, smiled the host, as he said good night and went out. The devotee carefully unwrapped the copy of the sutra and placed it before him but he found that he could not get out of his head what the teacher had said about the Buddha wanting him to go deeply into the meaning of the sutra instead of reciting it. And mixed up with that came the vision of the strange look which the benefactor had given at the end. He found that he could interpret that look now. It had been a look of triumph. This had been no kindly impulse, but a devil looking with satisfaction on something accomplished. Why has the devil brought me this sutra? Why is the Yasha so pleased with what he has done? Slowly he realized it all. That restless, intelligent mind had seen through his own self-satisfaction at his ability to recite the sutra, and had seen that the occasion was indeed an opportunity to become humble again, and turn to the meaning of the sutra. The devil had not wanted that, so he had sought for and found a copy of the sutra to feed the pride of an expert reciter. The devotee quietly wrapped up the sutra in the silk, bowed to it with deep reverence, and then turned himself to its meaning. He found the sutra coming to life in his own heart. All different. A girl began inner training under a Zen abbess for whom she had conceived a great reverence. 
After a period of probation, she was told by a senior disciple that she would now be given instructions on how to meditate. I have never done meditation at all, she said anxiously. These practices will be ones that suit me, won't they? Yes, they will suit you perfectly, she was assured. She was given the instructions and told at the same time that it would be better for her not to discuss her practices with anyone else. She fully intended to follow the advice, but, as often happens, something slipped out, and she was taken aback to learn that all the pupils had been given these same practices at the beginning. She asked to see the senior, to whom she complained. I had expected to receive personal instruction suited to my own temperament. I did ask for that, and you told me that I would get it. You have done. These practices will suit your temperament. But I've been told that they are just standard practices which everybody gets. We're all different. There can't be a standardised instruction suitable to everyone because we're all different. Everyone says that at the beginning, remarked the senior. But here, we do not find it so. We find that we're much the same. But the fact that everyone says we are different shows that we must be different, argued the pupil, puzzled. The answer came quietly. The fact that everyone claims to be different shows that we're all the same. Seeds Nearly every sang, from time to time, experiences a wave of inertia, which is actively supported by those pupils called the old soldiers and by other less complimentary names. With the aid of various false analogies, propounded with enormous condescension, they try to dissipate all enthusiasm and reduce the whole sang to their own state of apathy. On one such occasion, one such person was holding forth to a little group having their morning tea break on a veranda overlooking the garden. He waved a hand at the garden. Think of the seeds, he said magisterially. They are sown deep in the ground, and nothing more is seen of them for quite a time. But then the first sprout appears, and a little later the plant, or whatever it is. Do you remember, when you were very small children, how impatient you used to be, waiting for the seeds to show themselves? You expected something to happen next day, or at most next week. Some of you may even have dug them up to see what was happening. How ridiculous it is to the adult, though naturally to the child without experience, it seems quite natural. Well, it's the same with inner training, too. People are far too anxious to see some results, far too anxious. They should understand that once the seeds have been sown, it is a question of waiting, just waiting. Impatience for results does nothing to bring them about.
One of the gardeners, an experienced yogi, was passing just below the veranda. That's right, isn't it now? The speaker appealed to him for support. Yes, that's right. No use expecting seeds to come up the next day or the next week. But still, he continued with a negligible glance towards the old soldier. If it was ten years ago that you sowed them, and you've never watered the place, and you've been walking over it, and then you let a wall collapse on it and didn't clear away the rubble for quite some weeks, well then, I should think it might be worth digging them up and sowing some new ones. Emptying A teacher used to point out to his pupils that what is already full cannot take in any more. This well-known Zen principle is often illustrated by pouring more tea into a filled cup so that it overflows onto the table and floor. This teacher went on to say that when there is a vacuum in the mind, illumination can come to fill it. The pupils did not understand this, but let it go, except for one who persistently asked him what he meant exactly. How can we make a vacuum in the mind? he would say, to which the teacher made no reply, but sat silent. After some repetitions of this, the teacher told him, Well, as you are so keen, I'll give you some private instruction on it, if you're willing to prepare by purifying yourself. And he gave him elaborate directions for a daily ritual to be continued for three weeks, after which he was to fast for three days. When all this had been carried out, the candidate came at dawn to the main hall of the temple as arranged, where he found the teacher standing in full robes and looking enormously impressive. The pupil came forward in awe-struck silence, made his salutations, and stood before him. The teacher crashed the end of his staff onto the wooden floor three times, drew himself up to what seemed more than his normal height, and boomed, I have something very important to tell you. For this you have purified yourself and fasted. Now attend carefully. Such an opportunity is rare. He paused. The pupil waited for him to continue, but the master merely stood like a statue. The disciple began to think, why doesn't he tell me? Then he thought, what on earth is going on? As the silence lengthened, he realized that such thoughts were useless. He waited. Then he stopped waiting and just stood still. He began to feel a sort of emptiness spreading out within himself. After a little, in that emptiness, he caught a glimpse of a clarity and purity that does not have to speak, does not have to breathe, does not have to think. 
the teacher broke in abruptly. The interview is finished. Go away. In the following months, the emptiness began to return more and more often, bringing with it a kind of coolness and light. Some time afterwards, the teacher said to him, When you are fully expectant for something, and that thing does not come, or comes but is suddenly taken away, there is a vacuum. If you can manage not to fill that vacuum with thoughts of why isn't it here, or where has it gone, or why has it turned out like this, what's happening? Then, in the emptiness, you can have a realization. It's the same in worldly life. Suppose you have tried for something, and you have worked hard for it, sacrificing yourself for a long time, perhaps, even for years, until it has become the whole world to you. Suppose that thing is viciously kicked to pieces in front of your eyes and ceases to exist. It's completely destroyed by mindless spite. Now there's a vacuum. Now's the time. If you fill the emptiness with thoughts of resentment and hatred, you'll make no progress from it. If you can suddenly realize, now I'm free of that, free from it all, there'll be an emptiness. From emptiness, spiritual inspiration can come to you. If you do that, and you can do it if you try, you will feel a breath from beyond, giving you new life and new wisdom, those are the times. Of course, you must practice steadily and hard in the ordinary way. Very hard. But great openings come when your whole universe has suddenly collapsed and there's an emptiness. Silence a pupil asked why they were expected to study the texts. Surely it is enough if we simply do the practices. The teacher replied, Merely to perform the practices, like a pledge fulfilled, will not be effective if there is no inner conviction. The whole personality has to be unified into the practice. But why? Can't the disturbing elements of the personality be put down by very strong practice? They may be put down, replied the teacher, but they may not stay down. A 17th century Japanese Zen master relates how he once met an old priest who talked incessantly, like a waterfall. After a little time, he suggested to the old man that practice of silence was a good thing occasionally. 
Of course it is, shouted the priest. A very good thing, a very good thing it is, a very good thing indeed. I should know better than anyone, better than anyone. When I was young, I practised a vow of complete silence for fifteen years, fifteen full years, I tell you. I never spoke a word during those fifteen years, not a word. I'm the man to tell you about silence. And he proceeded to do so. Moo in Prison A Japanese businessman saw a cast-iron chance to make a quick profit. He took the capital from a trust fund, meaning to return it almost at once. It happened that a spot check by auditors revealed what he had done. Though the venture was successful and the money was repaid, it was a serious offence, for which he got a sentence of three years' imprisonment. He was sent to a small prison in the north. He had done a little Zen training some years before, mainly as a means to strengthen his character. During the hardships of prison, he again took up the Mu Koen, which he had been given at that time by the teacher. In an article which he wrote for a magazine, he described how the bad food, cold, and a brutal jailer made him think of suicide. But through the concentration on the Mu, he began to feel a sort of metal in himself. After a time, he found it recurring to his mind at odd moments during the day. He noticed a patch of small trees and scrub on the snowy mountain slope opposite the prison, which began to look like the compact twelve strokes of the Chinese character for Mu. Sometimes he felt a sensation of inner space, a coolness in the midst of his sufferings. The day of his release came. He had no fear of disgrace. It was generally recognized that there had been no risk to the money, and though he had broken the law, he had had no intention to swindle. And in fact, no one had lost anything. He had just been unlucky. It happened that he was offered an unexpected lift to his hometown and arrived a couple of hours before the family was expecting him. He did not go straight home because he thought they might be still making preparations for the welcome party, which his wife had told him about in her last letter. Instead, he walked to a little hill overlooking the house from a distance. It was spring, and when he saw his old home and the tree in the garden coming into bloom, he burst into tears. Suddenly he felt in himself the full rush of the great life which interpenetrates the universe. 
Why, he cried out, all is well as it is, as it is. This is the Buddha nature, nothing to be changed, nothing to be changed at all. He felt enlightened. He had thought of going back to his Zen teacher again, but realized that he did not need any further training now. Then the thought came to him, No, I do need it. This apparent enlightenment is based on being back in my hometown and free. It is no true enlightenment. That little breath of the moo which I felt in imprisonment, that was genuine, but not this. I shall go back to the teacher and train from that. How much? A keen member of a Sangha was always bringing extra furniture for the comfort of the Sangha members, and in many other ways trying to make the place and its garden more beautiful and artistic. A senior member finally dropped a hint that this was not necessary, and was indeed undesirable. But I am doing this so that our members should have as nearly perfect conditions for their practice as possible, protested the member. Surely that can't be wrong. Perfect external conditions are not attainable, said the senior. And even if they were, external conditions would do little to improve the internal conditions, which is the main point of our training. Then are we simply to let the place get dirty and leaky and the garden overgrown? The tradition does not say that, rejoined the other. There is a minimum necessary, or at any rate almost necessary. We should be very careful how to pile on so-called necessities beyond that. There is a saying which runs like this. One bowl of rice and a vegetable each day is necessary. Two is better. Three is luxury. Four makes him ill. Five kills him. The Mantra Sayer A Mantra Sayer declared, I always recite the mantra of perfect realization in the morning, because we are told that recitation of this will infallibly give nirvana. Then I recite the mantra of sweeping away obstacles in the evening because we are told that recitation of this will remove them all 
and as realization is something already achieved, the mere removal of the obstacles will reveal it. Do you really believe all this? asked the teacher. Yes, I do, replied the mantra sayer. Well, if you really believe in either, you won't need the other one, remarked the teacher. But you seem to think that each of them could do with a bit of reinforcing. Notes Our teacher, said a disciple to a friend of his, won't let us take notes when he gives his sermons. Still, he always speaks on one of the classical texts, so as soon as possible afterwards a group of us meet together and recover as much as we can from memory. With the basic text to consult, we can, between us, recall nearly everything that he said, and then we get it down. But why won't he allow notes while he's speaking? asked the friend. Yes, we'd always wondered that, went on the disciple. He just says at the beginning of every year that he doesn't want us to take notes. None of us felt we had the right to ask him. I mean, a teacher's decision mustn't be questioned, must it? But we thought we'd like to know. Well, one day, when we knew that some outsiders would be coming, we got a notebook and pencil ready. When we saw one keen-looking fellow going in, we just gave them to him. We didn't say anything. The teacher wouldn't have liked that. But we assumed that he'd probably make a note or two. And so he did. Soon after the sermon began, he jotted down something. The sermon stopped at once, and then he gave some wonderful teaching. The disciple half shut his eyes and continued in a slightly sing-song voice. I don't wish notes to be taken of these talks. It is no use doing it. Some of you may feel that you can take away something in note form and look over it later on at home and perhaps then get some sort of enlightenment. But that's a wrong idea. If you are going to get enlightenment, get it here and now, not afterwards. It's the same thing as going to a restaurant where you like the cooking, and instead of eating the food then and there, you wrap it up carefully and take it home with you. Then, after some time, maybe next day or next week, you take it out and warm it up in the oven and expect it to taste good and nourish you. But, of course, it's no good to you at all. And then you begin to blame the food, and perhaps the cook as well. The place to eat the food, to take it into yourself and digest it, is when the cook serves it to you. So, don't write down notes here, but give full attention to what is said and take it into your heart. Those were his exact words. Isn't it a wonderful teaching, like I said? Yes, said the friend. It certainly is. 
But how can you be so sure those were his exact words? It's quite long, and I don't see how you can be sure you remembered them perfectly. Why, I learned them by heart. We all did. It's wonderful teaching, and we knew it would never be repeated. So we learnt it by heart, from the script. Script? wondered the friend. What script? Oh, yes, confided the pupil. Didn't you guess? When we gave that visitor the pencil and notebook so that the teacher would tell him why notes shouldn't be taken, of course there was one of us behind a pillar, taking down what he'd say. We felt that the teaching mustn't be lost. Faith. A city dweller, a keen Buddhist, had to make a business visit to the deep country, and as there was no late train back, he stopped over for one night. In the evening, he went to a small temple belonging to a devotional sect. On his return to the city, he described to his teacher what a great effect the service had had on him. Those people there sitting so devoutly and listening intently to the resonant voice of the priest reciting their devotional texts. Wonderful! His voice was like a great bell, proclaiming the Buddha to the whole world. I was thinking to myself all the time, how different from the wavering minds and hidden scepticisms of us city folk. One could feel their absolute faith. No lurking doubts there at all. No, remarked the teacher. The only one who might have his doubts would be the priest himself. The Part An emotional man was protesting against the principle of detachment taught in many of the schools of inner training. It seems to me that this is a negation of all human feeling, he burst out. Surely, when there is an occasion for grief, I should express that grief fully. And when it is an occasion for happiness, I should express that happiness fully, laughing and singing and dancing if I feel like it. And then there are cases where I see something is wrong. I must show that I am against that, absolutely against it. Oh, the reply came. The training doesn't say that sometimes there are not genuine parts to be played. Often there is a genuine role, as you say. But a first-rate actor will manage to express it fully with the greatest economy of means. Why Hamlet? Hero
some of these youngsters take you as a hero, remarked a friend to a well-known judo teacher. Do you think that's a good thing? Well, replied the teacher absently, it's true that they see what they think are good points and try to imitate them. But from time to time I give them a hint about where I feel I have made mistakes in life and how and why it went wrong. I think some of them take it in. If they can imitate my good points and avoid some of my bad ones, then they'll do better in life than I've done. And that'll be some small gain for the world in the next generation, won't it? Jobs A woman disciple who took it upon herself to see that everything in the meditation center was spotlessly clean and in perfect order once complained about the slackness of the others. Some of them, she said to a senior, just sit there, meditating, I suppose they are, while I'm putting things in order. They get there before the meeting. But do they help me put the things out? Oh, no. They just get straight on with their meditation. I'd like to just sit there too, like them. But I can't. I'm too busy. The things have got to be put out in the traditional way, and away afterwards, haven't they? But it's always left to me, somehow. After a bit of this, the senior said, Well, then we'll try something else for a couple of weeks. Now, I've got a bit out of practice at putting the things out, and perhaps it would be a good example to others to see me doing it. For the next two weeks, then, you get there early and sit in meditation, and you have nothing whatever to do with arranging the meeting. So the senior was arranging the things while the member sat still, trying to prevent herself from giving reproachful glances at the others sitting alongside her. The arrangements were very simple. There was supposed to be a light in the centre. It had become a sort of tradition that this was represented by three little lights, put on a cloth on the floor in front of the meditators. They were always perfectly aligned at equal distances. There was no rule about where they should be placed, though the arranger generally had placed them exactly in the centre of the cloth. This had come to be expected. About the third day, however, the senior placed the little line just in front of the now meditating member. As the meeting began, she opened her eyes and saw with a little start not only the unusual position of the lights, wrong, said a little voice in her head, but also that they were not quite in line and that the intervals between them were not the same she tried to think that she was not concerned with that now, that the senior had done it and doubtless had some good reason. Perhaps, after all, 
it did not matter. What did it matter? Not at all. Perhaps that was what the senior was teaching. She tried to accept it, but still something grated. Why change what everyone agreed was a charming and artistic tradition? Next day it was the same. She began to feel an impulse just to put out her hand and adjust the out-of-line light. Just one little touch would do it. But she had been told it was nothing to do with her now. Her body began to fidget slightly. Well, when she got the job back in ten days, she would see it was done right again. It was a long ten days. At the end, she saw the senior again, who said, It's not necessarily so easy to sit there, is it? We all have this sort of thing, you know. The learned ones who study so hard sometimes think they'd like to have a rest from it and be like the lazy ones who never open a book. That's what they think. And some of those who've been directed to meditate so hard think how easy it would be just to potter about arranging a few lights and sweeping the floor. Now, what do you want to do? The member said, I understand now a little bit. You tell me what would be good that I should do, and let me try and do that. Ah, said the senior. Good. A devout widow, a woman of clear sight and organising ability, was the guiding hand behind a great work of charity, which substantially benefited the condition of the poor people of the town. She did this in strict anonymity. But, by an extraordinary chance, the identity of the secret benefactor leaked out. She began to be respected and even revered by the townspeople. She remarked to a friend from another town, I am going to leave this place. I am too highly esteemed here. All this fame and attention interfere with my spiritual practices. You need not move, her friend replied. Quite soon, you'll find that envious people are circulating damaging rumours about you. They'll say, oh, I don't know what it will be, perhaps that you have somehow made something for yourself out of the funds. That's the sort of thing. Then you'll drop into obscurity again and get your freedom back. Some months later, they met again.
You were right, and I am free once more, said the widow, and smiled. Cat and Dog. In Sojiji Temple near Tokyo, there is a picture of the Chinese Zen patriarch Nansen killing a cat. It illustrates a famous koan riddle: With his right hand, he is holding aloft the glaring, spitting cat, while his other hand grasps the sword. The Japanese master Dogen, founder of the Soto Zen line, of which Sojiji is a head temple, remarked of the story: "Buddhism can be taught in this way, but it is open to abuse, and best avoided." A great Indian teacher who saw the picture remarked that the cat represents the mind. One of his pupils was asked about it and commented. The teacher did not care for the company of cats. In the tradition, the cat was the only animal which did not come to mourn the passing away of the Buddha. Devoted to comfort as they are, they teach no spiritual lesson. Whereas the dog, intelligent and self-sacrificing, has a lesson to teach. The dog looks at you, and his look says. How wonderful you are! How I love you! What can I do to serve you? The cat looks at you, and the look says, "How wonderful I am! How you love me! What are you going to do to serve me?" The untrained mind is a cat, very selfish, but often loved and served by the individual self. It must become a dog. Loyal and self-sacrificing, recognizing the superiority of the true human self. Then it becomes not only happier but more intelligent, like the dog, who, recognizing the superiority of the human, is not merely happier than the cat, but far more intelligent. Shooting arrows. A monster bird, though it did not do much actual harm, terrorized the whole district by its frightening appearance. So a great warrior. Was asked if he could make it go away or kill it. I have seen a picture of the bird. It is sort of human with a bird's head and wings, and it has a terrifying aspect. The warrior went and started shooting arrows at it, but his arrows did not pierce its body; they stuck to it.
So the warrior took his lance and ran at it. But the lance too was deflected and just stuck on the bird's body. Then he heaved at it with his sword, but the sword somehow did not make contact, but also just stuck. Being a warrior, he also knew of the jujitsu means, as they were then, and he tried them. But his hands now also stuck to the bird's body, and he was rendered helpless. And the bird head said, Now do you surrender. When he said no, the bird was transformed. We need not go into it, but it was the god of the martial arts, and he said, You have tried with everything you knew, with arrow, lance, sword, and your techniques. All these failed until there was nothing left. You were naked. Nothing but still. Now, this story was taken up by a Zen teacher. When we approach something like Zen, though it is not restricted to Zen, we first of all try shooting the arrows of our opinion, or of information which we have, or of guesses or inference. We try from a safe distance, shooting arrows as we try to pierce it and to find out what it is but the arrow flies with alien feathers. The feathers in an arrow are not its own. They have come from somewhere else. And further, an arrow may pierce its target, but then it is taken out and perhaps used again. The arrow never gets anything. But the bird which flies with its own feathers, when it has made its flight, finds a nest and a mate, and has young ones. Moreover, the arrows of opinion will not pierce the target. They will just stick. So will the lance, the sword, and finally the technique, until you have nothing left. You have to approach this finality. It is not wrong to try these means, but in the end... There has to be nothing left but you. And if you are still determined and not daunted by the failures, then there will be a transformation. Trick In the 1950s, a stipendiary magistrate of unimpressive build called at the Budokwai Judo Club. I'll call him Henry Simmons. His work took him sometimes into dangerous places where he might be attacked, and he wanted to learn some self-defense. We did not normally teach self-defense to anyone who had not done at least two years judo and could not control their temper. Furthermore, the tricks will not work without precision and balance acquired by considerable training. He was referred to me, and I explained this to him. He asked, Is there nothing, then? 
and I told him that if he joined the club and was willing to practice fifteen minutes a day at home, I could show him something. Our principle was to make the wealthy pay for the poor. Some of the keenest young members had very little money. I told him it would be very boring, but there was something determined about him. I explained that he would learn only one trick. I gave him three lessons on this very unusual technique. It has the advantage of infallibly surprising an attacker, but the slightest hesitation or imprecision ruins it. He had to build up his practice to 150 repetitions of this each morning. As he mastered it, he could do it in ten minutes. I saw him occasionally for the first few months. When he had mastered it, he thought of dropping the practice. But I warned him, never miss even one day, however off-colour you may feel. It has to become natural. I suddenly shot a hand toward his eyes, and as he blinked, said, It's got to become as unconsciously done as that blink. I heard no more till about thirty years later, after I had retired from judo and never went near the judo clubs. Then a young judo enthusiast came to see me about something quite different. He was a bit in awe of my judo grade, and seemed slightly embarrassed as he said on leaving, My uncle is Henry Simmons, and when he heard I had taken up judo, he gave a message for me to pass to Mr. Leggett, if I ever saw you. He didn't explain it, and I don't know what it means, but anyway, I'd like to pass it on now. It's in two words. It worked. Gardens Western members of an Eastern Sang were discussing what they agreed was a common difficulty. When a new practice is received solemnly from the teacher, there is a feeling of exultation, but that feeling gradually gets less. It can be revived temporarily by reliving in memory the occasion when this practice was conferred, but these revivals become less and less effective. Finally, the practice is liable to become completely dry, pursued only in a dogged spirit of keep on keeping on. As they realized how general the experience was, they decided to ask one of them to put it to the teacher on behalf of all. When he heard what the delegate had to say, however, he insisted that they should all come together as a group to put their question. After questioning a number of them, 
and hearing their replies on very much the same lines, namely of wearing off of the spiritual elevation felt at the beginning in spite of sincere efforts to preserve it, he made a formal reply. I asked you all to come here and submit to being questioned, to confirm that you are all really concerned with this, and not simply subscribing to something dreamed up by one person. You all seem to assume the practices are given to you in order to produce a state of exaltation, but that is not the case at all. A state of exaltation can arise from temporary gratification of an ambition, for instance. There are such higher states of exaltation which arise from the purification of the mind instrument. But none of these things is the purpose of the practices in any true tradition. Sometimes young aspirants, after completing a severe course of training or making a great renunciation, seem to shine like torches. But it goes off after a time. There seems to be a Western tendency to think in terms of negative or positive exclusively, triumph or disaster. I have heard that in your Bible you have a book of jubilees, but there is also a book of lamentations. The two go together. When we look at pictures of your famous gardens, we see the same thing. They depend on large expanses with many flowers. In the summer, they are ablaze with color. But in the winter, they look deserted and melancholy. At one time, they are glad. At the other season, they are sad. The two go together. But the famous gardens in Japan do not depend on passing things like flowers. There may be some flowers, but the garden does not depend on them for its effect. The rock gardens, for instance, may consist of little more than rocks and carefully raked sand. To a western eye, I am told, there seems to be nothing much there at first glance. But after a time, the proportions of the garden begin to have an effect on a silent onlooker. He begins to feel that there is a peace in the garden, and soon afterwards he feels a peace in himself. After a fall of snow, the proportions of the garden are still able to convey that peace. Snow can even add to the beauty of the garden. The general tradition in the East has been to aim at freedom from the alternation of bad and good, negative and positive, sad and glad. The goal is peace. You have this tradition in Christianity also, the peace that is beyond understanding, but it does not seem to be given the central place. When you take up a practice here, disregard feelings of exaltation or depression. For a long time, these will come and go across the surface of your mind. But go deeper than the surface. By your practice, penetrate to the very depths of the mind, and finally, beyond even that. Then you will find peace and freedom from all passing alternations.
Independence 1. There was a Zen class attended by many foreigners that I had heard about when I was in Tokyo. The teacher carried a stick and said, If you do not sit properly, I will hit you with this stick. Then he shouted, Don't raise your shoulders like that. Drop your shoulders. I shall walk slowly and watch you. But don't be nervous. Drop your shoulders. And if I see you sitting calmly with shoulders dropped, I won't hit you at all. Or maybe I'll hit you twice as hard. You have to consign yourself to your teacher. There has to be complete resolution to go through anything. Two. A very poor Brahmin poet composed some verses for a Muslim ruler who, most impressed, ordered a great pile of silver coins to be given as reward. The Brahmin refused to accept the silver unless the gift was made in the traditional fashion. That is, the giver must bow when the gift is bestowed. This the Muslim refused to do. Think well, said the ruler, pointing to the silver. Where will you find a patron like this? And where will you find an independent man like this? said the Brahmin, kicking over the pile of silver as he walked out. We are not asked to do things like this very often, but we have to be ready to do something like it sometime in our lives. We have to do it not whiningly and grudgingly, but with a kick of independence as we walk away. Gone Away in some Japanese temples, there are glass cases in which are displayed ancient manuscripts, relics of the founder, and so on. There are no professional guides, and young monks learn the information by heart, stand beside the case, and recite it. I remember in one temple, the guide stood upright beside the case, saying his piece without himself looking at the exhibit. At one point, we moved on to a certain case from which the exhibit had been removed for cleaning or some research. The monk did not notice, but gave his description in a firm voice. Only after a minute did he notice that we were not looking at the case and himself peered into it. Oh, he said, oh, it's gone away and led us on to the next. I was reminded of this 
when I heard a teacher say how many of the temples in China early in this century had been still magnificent, but the gods had departed. The majesty of the buildings, and the splendor of the services, and the sonorous syllables of the holy texts were saying, Here is the truth, come and worship. But the thing they were describing had gone away. Ghosts. A merchant who lived near a graveyard got the idea that ghosts from the graves were threatening to enter his house. He got a spell from a priest and went over the graveyard at sunset, as he had been told, reciting the spell with all his force. You have to feel that you are spitting out all your insides with the spell, the priest had instructed him. At first he was trembling with fear, but after a little he felt the effects of the spell, and finally realized that the ghosts had been quelled. He boasted of his success to a friend, a man who had attained discernment through Zen practice. You don't have anything like this in your Zen, I suppose. I wouldn't say there's nothing like it, replied the friend. But in Zen, the question would have to be asked, what is this being done for? And what about the feelings of the ghosts? They may have been subdued, but they are still there, aren't they? Surely this is not the right way. Then what ought I to do? asked the merchant. Get another prayer, this time for the salvation of ghosts. They will become freed from the bonds of unfulfilled karma, which still hold them here, and there will be no more ghosts. That is the right way to meet ghosts, inner and outer. The Pond In one of the oldest Japanese temples, there is a small pond. It is irregular in shape, but admired by visitors, especially foreign visitors, for the subtle aesthetic effect of the design. At the end of one such enthusiastic foreign visit, the head monk remarked confidentially in Japanese to a foreigner whom he knew well, This pond is not old, though it has been allowed to become old-looking. As a young monk, I was one of those who dug it. Six of us began together in the middle of the space, and we simply dug outward from the centre. Of course, the stronger monks got further out than the weaker ones. After a few days, the old head monk came to see it. He said, Stop! 
Now bank up the sides with the big stones and leave it. See that the moss is allowed to grow over the stones. As I look at it now, I do find it attractive. But when it's so admired, I feel tempted to tell them how it got made, and ask them this. Who should get the credit for the design? The strong monks? The weak monks? The old head monk? Or something else? Fallacy somewhere. A Buddhist was trying to point out to a skeptic the superiority of Buddhism as suitable for a rational person. In religions, there is always a dogma which has to be believed or at least subscribed to. In Buddhism, there is no such requirement. The Buddha simply presented his view and asked listeners to apply their own reason. If it seemed reasonable to them, they should adopt it. The sceptic produced an unexpected rejoinder. As a matter of fact, the Buddhist presentation contains a fallacy which religions in general do not suffer from. The fallacy is this. The Buddha's conclusion was that the mind of the ordinary man is stained and swayed by passion and delusion, and therefore incapable of seeing the truth. So far, it is undeniably the fact. In Buddhist practice, there is a long process of purifying the mind before truth is realised. And yet, there is the Buddha telling people who have never done the practice to use their reason to judge his doctrine. On his own showing, that unpurified reason will be unable to judge between truth and falsehood. It will give him a doubtful report every time. That's why it would be more reasonable to believe dogmas, which at least claim to come from a divine source of truth. Your Buddhism is like handing a camel hairbrush to someone whose eyes are full of grit and telling him to use it to get the grit out. The eye itself, which is necessary to the operation, is the very thing which is impaired. The only reasonable thing for such a patient, nearly blind himself, is to find someone else to get his eyes clean. It is the same with perception of ultimate truth. Surely you see that. The Buddhist was bewildered and did not know what to say. That evening, he asked his teacher, who said, I have told you in the past not to argue with combative sceptics. Such debates are fruitless and do not lead to truth. They go on endlessly. But it seems to me that this point was reasonable, as he said it was. Surely we need to know how to meet this sort of doubt. It can be met, replied the teacher. But to meet it, gives no spiritual satisfaction. It is simply a matter of words. For instance, he was admitting the uncertainty of reason in order to attack the Buddha. The Buddha 
used to point out that his own conclusions could be confirmed by anyone through practice. The real test is experience. And, as a matter of fact, true religions all say the same thing. Their statements are not meant to be mere dogmas, blindly or fanatically accepted. I've seen in the Upanishad called Brihadaranyaka, which is much older than the Buddha's time, how first an ancient sage's experience of truth is described. He was already long before 600 BC. Then it adds, And to this day it is the same for whoever knows in like manner. Over a thousand years after that, the great philosopher yogi of India confirmed, On this point, there is no difference between the spiritual giants of the past and the little people of today. All can realize truth in the same way. But truth is not weakened or strengthened by clever debating points. Dark Spotlight <coughs> In one of the weekly discourses to a small group of disciples from the country, the subject of egoism was raised on several successive occasions. The speaker remarked that people who had done a little training were of course aware that they ought not to perform their good deeds to the sound of trumpets, as it were. But, he added, there is a way of coughing when putting a gold coin in the collection bowl, which is really the same thing. Let our motto for a few weeks be, no coughing when practicing virtue. As they left to return to the country, one woman disciple confided to her friend, I cannot understand why, when we are there, the teacher keeps on talking about egoism as a great barrier. Perhaps he thinks we are egoistic, replied the other. I always try to examine my conduct afterwards and usually find something on those lines. You can speak for yourself, of course. I have nothing to say about that. But me, how could anyone think me egoistic? I always keep in the background. I do all that service without any attempt at getting recognition for it. Why, I'm famous for my love of obscurity. Cleaning A Zen teacher was asked to visit a hippie community, and when he arrived, they were lined up to meet him. He said afterwards, All the men had one leg of their frayed trousers shorter than the other. The women's clothes were ill-fitting and not too clean. Both sexes had their hair in a tangle. In a Zen monastery, however poor the clothes may be, they are always clean and carefully adjusted. 
After the talk and meditation session, one of the community said in a puzzled tone, Why do Zen followers lay such stress on tidiness? Surely it's an obsessive concern with trivialities. What do such things matter? They don't have anything to do with the big things of life. To be always fussing about them is just a burden on the mind. The teacher saw the community cat passing and snapped his fingers. The cat came up and the teacher gave it a little milk. The cat purred, sat down and began to clean itself vigorously. He likes doing that, remarked the teacher. Cleanliness and desire for beauty are among the deepest instincts. Oh, but for men, argued the other, surely we should be concerned with what's really important, not with such artificialities. Surely it's not right to spend much time and energy on artificial tidying. One can be artificially untidy, too, replied the teacher. It's a sort of defiance, and has nothing to do with what's really important. Spitting in a traditional-style Japanese home, or a temple today, the floor consists of straw mats, beautifully constructed with exact precision. Life is lived on the floor, the whole building being raised a couple of feet off the ground. The mats and the wooden corridors are kept spotlessly clean, and no dirt from outside is allowed to enter. Shoes are left in the porch located on the ground level. The avoidance of what is called akka, which can be roughly translated as dirt, grime, or anything greasy or slimy, has always been a major preoccupation in Japan. For instance, in the first half of this century, a Japanese girl would tend to hesitate on entering a Western-style classroom at school. Her instinct was to remove her shoes so as not to bring the dirt of the playground into the classroom. Again, Japanese women wear with traditional dress a pair of white cotton socks. An aristocratic Kyoto lady on her at-home day used to change her socks when one visitor left before receiving the next one. Socks that had been worn for even an hour were, so to speak, notionally impure. In some countries of East Asia, however, at the beginning of this century, the village dwellings had a floor of earth, and life was lived on rough chairs and tables. As in Western life, dogs could freely enter a house if they belonged to the home. In such villages, some of the men had a habit of chewing betel nut leaves and spitting out the remaining fibres. It makes a brilliant red splotch on the ground but is soon trodden in when outside the home. There were some who did not bother to make any distinction between the inside and outside of the house. A Buddhist from such a village, K. 
came to train at a temple in Japan. He was very keen and had made some progress in the language before coming, which is rather rare in foreign visitors, and accordingly impressed his hosts. Looking round the temple, he at once realised that his almost unconscious habit of spitting on the floor would be quite inappropriate in these spotless surroundings, and he made great efforts to remember not to do so. But occasionally, the force of old habit became too strong, and he would pass on his way unaware that he had left a red splotch in a corner of the room. The first few times it happened, it was pointed out to him, with increasing resentment by the monks, and he always apologised profusely and hastened to clean it up. But he still had lapses. After one such lapse, the head monk was talking about it to the old abbot over tea. He was a perfectionist and expressed his disgust freely. Do you think that our new monk is making efforts to get rid of this regrettable habit? asked the abbot. Oh yes, he's very sincere. In a way, he's as distressed by it as anyone. It's not his sincerity that is lacking. It's simply that the culture he comes from can hardly be called a culture at all. It's really a sort of animal life that they're living, judging from this sort of habit. He noticed that the abbot had absently picked up the tea cloth and was wiping up a few drops of tea and crumbs that had evidently fallen on the floor. He went on. It seems to me that with such a huge gap between their way of living and ours, it's rather useless for him to come here to train. It's a nuisance for our people to have to go round mopping up these stains whenever they see them. The abbot was vigorously mopping with his tea cloth at the floor round the table. Oh, it's all right here, teacher. He's not allowed in this room. He hasn't been here spitting on the floor in that disgusting way of his. The abbot still plied his cloth, and the head monk stopped abruptly. He suddenly realised that there are other, more venomous forms of spitting than the merely physical one. He changed the subject, and the abbot stopped mopping. Time, time. In Japan in the 13th century, old people who were deemed useless were taken up a mountain to die. In this case, a son decided his father had to go, since he had become a burden. We are going to take Grandpa to the top of the mountain and leave him there, he told his own little son. The boy, who was fond of his Grandpa, asked why he couldn't stay at home with them. No, said the father, it's kind of that way, when old people are confused and useless. They got a dilapidated sedan chair, bundled the old man into it, and went to the mountaintop. The child asked his father to take Grandpa out of the chair and bring it down. No, there's no need. This is an old chair, 
no use to anyone. But I need it for you when your time comes, said the boy. It's nice to record that the father reconsidered, and they brought Grandpa down. The Blue Mountains. I don't think I want to undertake inner training, remarked a layman to a teacher, because after all, what guarantee is there that I would be able to bring it to a conclusion? There is no assurance, and it would be a waste of a lot of time and effort if I took it up and then found I couldn't complete it. The same applies to any plan which you make, came the answer. And yet you continue to plan, to move to a better house, to send your children to a good college, and thousands of other things. In one tradition, the state of spiritual fulfillment is called the Blue Mountains, where the saint ascetic lives in contemplation and has the freedom of all worlds. The concluding line of a famous poem runs, The place he has reached when he dies, that is his blue mountains. A true man sets out on the way and pursues it dauntlessly until he drops. But you have dropped before you set out. Paid for. In the Tang dynasty, a Zen monk was preaching in the open air to a small crowd. A seller of pears pushing his cart of fruit with its two long handles, paused to listen. He became more and more impatient with the teaching about restraint of passions and inner serenity. Finally, he shouted, What can your Buddha do? Show us a miracle if you want us to listen to you. Miracles have to be paid for, replied the monk, and they bring no lasting good but practice self-restraint and meditation, and you will be free from sufferings forever. Talk, all talk, retorted the peddler angrily, and he forced his cart through the crowd up to the front. Your Buddha did miracles, didn't he? Then you do one, if you call yourself a Buddhist. The Buddha passed six years in austerities, living on one rice grain a day. If you did that, you would experience miracles. But he gave them up, and he never taught them to his disciples. He never taught miracles as a way of ending suffering. That's a get-out, just a get-out. Show us something, show us something. 
the crowd began to take it up. Yes, he's right. Show us something. Show us something. The monk suspended his teaching. He looked at them impressively. Clear a little space, he commanded, and then stretched forth his hand. From the ground sprouted, with breathtaking speed, a pear tree, two of its boughs heavy with fruit. The monk stepped forward and broke them off. He went round, distributing the pears to the people. When they were finished, he walked quickly away, and the crowd dispersed. The seller of pears, his mouth still open with amazement, pulled himself together. He looked round and saw his cart. The two long handles had been broken off, and it was empty of pears. Triumph. A piece of advice which can be most useful in life runs something like this: Aim at success, never at triumph. If you have aimed at success merely, then whether you meet with that or with failure, you will not be upset. You will not get excited. Because your personal feelings have not been bound up with your action. But if you have aimed at triumph, then when it comes off, you will become overlated and want to tell everyone about it, and in failure you will get depressed or perhaps angry. In which case you will find yourself either trying to conceal it, or else blaming it on other people. So aim at success, never. A triumph. I once had an experience which brought this advice to life for me. I was given the job of sweeping the leaves away from one courtyard of a Japanese temple. Such courtyards are often covered with moss, and there are small trees which come into leaf at different times of the year to give the moss the shade which it needs. Moss is regarded as a symbol of spiritual progress in Japanese Buddhism. Its growth cannot be forced, but if all weeds are removed, it does make surprisingly fast progress. The leaves were falling from the trees in this particular courtyard. Some were on the ground, and others were very loose. I swept the fallen leaves carefully from the surface of the moss into a heap, which I then transferred into the bag provided. I wanted to leave the courtyard absolutely clear of leaves. Absolutely, in other words, I wanted a triumph. This was one of the first jobs I had been given in the temple, and I wished it to be done perfectly. But I found that when I had swept the ground clear from under several of the trees, one or two more leaves then fell, marring the unbroken greenness of the moss carpet. 
With some irritation I walked across, snatched them, and stuffed them into the bag. Then a few more fell on another part, which I had already swept. I found myself becoming annoyed and then angry. I was fairly strong, and as an experienced judo man I knew how to apply strength. So I took hold of each tree in turn and shook it violently. All the leaves, which were at all loose, came down in a shower. I then swept the whole lot up with powerful strokes of the besom. I felt like a man who had just won a judo contest, in this case, however, against trees. I triumphantly surveyed the courtyard, now absolutely clear of leaves. As I turned to go with the full bag, I noticed a monk watching me. He said something to the effect that this was perhaps a little brutal, was it not? We just sweep up every day the leaves that have fallen. If some more come down where we have already swept, we will sweep them up tomorrow. Years later, I read something by Mamaya, a great Zen master and poet of the early twentieth century, about sweeping leaves. From my own experience of annoyance at the trees, I could understand his meaning. I felt that perhaps he had had the same experience when young, and that it applied to much more than sweeping courtyards. We sweep up the leaves that have fallen, but we do not hate the trees for dropping them. To the last drop. A women's charitable organisation gradually came to be dominated by an energetic member, skilled in committee procedures and expert at shouting down arguments against her plans. She began to use the meetings as a vehicle for self-display and for giving expression to her personal likes and dislikes. Quite soon, there was a marked deterioration in the organisation's activities, but most of the members were afraid to oppose her. The only one who was courageous enough to do so was the disciple of a Zen teacher. She got no support from her timid fellow members in her attempts to get things back onto a proper basis and was instead subjected to a campaign of vilification, not stopping at personal physical attacks of a minor nature. She made no complaint, but the teacher came to hear of it and one day said to her, What is your feeling under this persecution? She said, Well, I suppose I try to feel sorry for her because of the bad karma which she is piling up by destroying a benevolent activity. No use at all, cried the teacher. That sort of attitude is no good. It'll only tire you out. And anyway, you won't be able to keep it up. No one can. Now, 
think this. You've got to drink down that poisonous venom to the very last drop. There is a verse. Set free the bird to fly in the infinite sky of your tolerance. Loose the fish to swim in the boundless ocean of your forgiveness. Live that. She said, but what are we to do? She is not only vicious, but destructive too. Are we simply not to oppose her? I have opposed her and she hates me for it. Are we just to let her have her way out of love and forgiveness and tolerance? Others are now beginning to join me. People are slowly realising what is happening. The teacher looked at her with his eyes wide open. What you do must come from love. It does not mean doing nothing. The words and acts of love are not always kind on the surface. You may oppose her. In fact, you should do so. But it must be for the sake of the benevolent work of your organisation. And it must be on a basis of love. If you cannot act from love, you may succeed, but you will probably end up just like her. Very likely, she herself began as a reformer. Having been successful, she got carried away by it. Tiger slayers often end up as tigers themselves. And if you yourself are successful, don't seek triumph. Be satisfied with success. Then make it easy for her if she seeks to shed this role in which she has got caught. Probably she is already sick of it, but cannot get out of it. Let the glacier melt slowly under the gentle spring sun. Wisdom Water A number of Sanskrit words came into Japanese along with Mahayana Buddhism, one of them being prajna, which means transcendental wisdom. A Japanese politician wrote an article, in the course of which he described how he and two or three others had made a visit to a Buddhist temple to find out whether all was well with the temple lands, and if not, whether they could do anything to help. The abbot received them kindly, and the discussion was amiable. There were only a couple of very minor matters which could easily be set right, and they promised to do them. The abbot then invited them to lunch, and a vegetarian meal was served, very well cooked. The abbot asked whether they would like anything to drink with it, and the politician took this to be an invitation to have some Japanese rice wine. 
He therefore said that he and his companions would welcome a little sake. To his amazement, the abbot strongly reprimanded him, saying it was a disgrace to utter such a vulgar word in the sacred precincts. The politician knew that many Buddhist priests do in fact permit the use of wine, provided it does not lead to intoxication. He assumed that this temple was a particularly strict one, and he apologized profusely for his suggestion. The abbot accepted the apologies with a dignified inclination of the head. He called his attendant and said, Serve our guests with some prajna water. The politician wondered what wisdom water might be, and prepared himself for something on the lines of a fruit juice drink. When the wisdom water came, however, it turned out to be sake of high quality. It had been only the word that was prohibited, not the thing itself. Channel. Some people say that although they meditate and do practice, there is no response from the true face within. A teacher gave this example. Suppose you are an electrician and are rung up to go round at once for some urgent repair, but then come back again complaining that there was no one in. You then telephone the place and are told, I have been in all the time waiting for the electrician. Why don't you come? But I rang the bell and rang and rang, and there was no answer, you say. The teacher said that in the same way, repairing the bell is our immediate task when we practice. Then there will be a response. Theoretically, we know that the air is full of radio waves. But people might ask, where are these waves? And we say, oh, but they are here. One may want to listen to them, but when one is banging and shouting, one cannot hear anything. Or if one has but a little set, even a little banging and shouting, and I cannot hear. This is a delicate analogy. The receiving set is not perfect for a long time, but the sound is there. In the same way, the teacher said, we are spitting at the Buddha all day long, and then in the evening we are shouting at the Buddha. But if we reduce the noise, reduce the shouting, reduce the banging, reduce the clamour, I don't see him. Then he can be perceived. The teacher said there is all the difference in the world between a man who is inviting the Buddha into his own home, but stands in the door so that the Buddha cannot come in, and another who stands aside, becoming nothing, and so the Buddha can come in. 
In the same way, standing out in our meditation and daily life practice, we are in the way. Although we are inviting and seeking, we are actually in the way. And the thing is to melt into and become a vacancy through which the Buddha can come. And he said that the practices to this purpose are not very attractive, or they are attractive at first, which is one understanding of the beginner's mind, and why the beginner's mind is so highly praised. In the beginning, we are thinking and pondering about the practice all the time. In our daily life, we can hardly wait and exercise patience, or whatever else it might be. We must not forget that urgency, because the time will come when we will merely think, I'll do it, I'll do it, yes, I'll do it. Think back then to the beginner's mind. Usually, we start with enthusiasm. Then we have a dead period, when we think it is always going to be like this, always going uphill and somehow dreary and dull. Where, then, is the joy in this? There is not really, and what you felt at the beginning was actually no joy, but hope. A modern analogy says that it is like this with cigarettes and whiskey. Nobody enjoys the first cigarette they smoke. They only smoke them in order to appear more grown-up than they are. And nobody likes the first whiskey or other alcohol. Rather, they spit them out if they can. Yet these two can become the strongest addictions. This may not be a particularly elevating example, but it is a powerful one. In the same way, Zen Buddhist practice can open up and become a joy like no other joy. Pearls At the end of a talk on Buddhism by a well-known master, a Western listener irritably objected. You kept saying that while our whole life was a life of distinctions, we should be in illusion and suffer. You quoted all those stories of rich people groaning because they thought themselves very poor, or people standing up to the neck in fresh water and crying out, We're thirsty! All very pathetic. But you contradict yourself, because your words themselves are distinctions. So your very words are part of it all. They are just as illusory as the rest. Yes, said the preacher. They're imitation pearls, thrown to people pretending to be beggars. But it makes them feel better, just for a bit. And when they feel better, they might stop groaning and wailing for a moment and look around at how things really are. Interlaced Trees
A wood of trees, growing together, can get the branches interlaced, so that the trees support each other. Even if the root has become very shallow, the whole thing looks like a stable structure, a sort of table with many legs. But because there are no deep roots, it all collapses helplessly in a storm. A society or group, says a 17th century Zen master, can be like these. The various elements support each other by a system of conventions accepted by all, for no other reason than that they have always been accepted. There may be no deep roots of conviction anywhere, but that society can look very stable. It is, however, no longer creative, and it too collapses before any sudden crisis. In somewhat the same way, an individual personality can apparently hold together firmly, because the parts support each other. But this lasts only so long as times are good. Unless roots of spiritual conviction are put down, the whole structure is brittle and hollow and falls to pieces in a storm. The Singing Eggs This story is translated from the Japanese of a six-year-old boy. One day, the eggs began singing. In the hen's nests, in the shops, in the kitchens, they were singing and singing. People didn't like to hear the eggs singing. They said, we'll cook them. We'll boil them and poach them and scramble them and fry them. Then they'll stop singing. But even when they were boiled and poached and scrambled and fried, the eggs went on singing. The people got angry. We'll eat them, they said. Then they'll have to stop singing. But even when they were eaten, the eggs went on singing from inside the people. The people were very angry. They were bad people. They shouted, We'll kill them! They got knives and tried to kill the eggs inside them, but they only killed themselves. And all over the world, the eggs went on singing and singing. The Pillar A brilliant young research graduate put in for an award 
and did not get even an honourable mention. He had reason to suspect jealousy in the judges. When his teacher asked him about it, he blazed out against the corruption at the top. But you still want to get there? asked the teacher. Well, yes, I'd like my work to be recognised. They were sitting on chairs on the veranda, and the teacher fetched a piece of rope from the garden. He put it round one of the pillars and passed the two ends to the pupil. Bring that pillar near to you. But that's impossible. Try. The pupil stood up, braced his feet on the floor, and pulled. No result. The teacher said, People sometimes think if I can't get to the top, perhaps I can bring the top down to me, and they criticize and condemn to denigrate it. But that is not the right way. Sit down and lift your feet off the ground a bit. Now, pull on the rope again. At the first tug, the chair began to slide across the smooth floor and ended up beside the pillar. The teacher took the rope, put it back, and said no more. The scientist pondered the incident. Some years later, another piece of his work was highly praised, and now the merit of the first piece was also recognized. A friend remarked, You know, we all thought you were remarkably calm over that first rejection. It was a real scandal. The researcher told him about the rope and pillar and added confidentially, Finally, I came to realize that while I braced myself on my egoism and tried to bring the pillar of success to me as I stood, I wouldn't succeed. When I gave up I and here, my efforts had their natural result. The teacher did it in that special way. Considering the state I was in, I don't think sermons would have had much effect. Unseen. There is a certain commercialism in some aspects of the Western worldview, extending into religion and art, as well as home life and the business of making a living, where it is to be expected. One result is that where an action done, or a mere existence, leads to no quantifiable result in human terms, it tends to be written off as entirely futile. There is another view in the East, strongly subscribed to, though not necessarily carried out in practice, in which an action rightly performed, or a true existence, as distinct from an imitation, has a sufficient value in itself. It may lose much of that value, 
by being mixed up with ideas of results. This view is expressed in the Gita verse, Let your concern be with right action, never with getting its fruits. Let not desire for fruits be your motive, but do not be attached to inaction. Some Westerners believe that without a desire for some subsequent result, an action will be done unenthusiastically or even carelessly. If results do not matter, then the cleaner will leave spots and smears on the floor. The results do not matter, so why clean well? One reply to this is that in that case, the action has not in fact been done. If the floor is not clean, it has not in fact been done. If the floor is not clean, it has not been cleaned. One who has to be motivated by expectation of results, whether rewards, appreciation or fear, is called a man of rajas, or passion struggle, and rajas always leads to pain in the end. A famous expression of that pain is the gentle melancholy of Gray's verse, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen, and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Baudelaire adapted and perhaps enriched the last two lines, but the idea is the same sadness and futility. Maintes fleurs épanches à regret, son parfum doux comme un secret, dans les solitudes profondes. And many a rueful flower must waste its sweet perfume as a secret on deserts no man ever trod. feeling is transformed into peace by the Japanese verse on the same theme, not for the sake of a beholder in the deep mountains blossoms the cherry out of the sincerity of its heart. Lotus Lake, Dragon Pool, was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brawley, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adhyatma Yoga Trust.
Encounters in Yoga and Zen, Meetings of Cloth and Stone, was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brolly, Judith Clark, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adyatma Yoga Trust.